Morning, everybody. Whew. Happy Father's Day, guys and girls. You've all got fathers, and if you don't have one on earth, you have one in heaven. What a blessing. And I'm so honored. My father is here today. Mike, where is he? <laughs> He's got a leaky bladder. That's what happens when you're turning 79 in three days' time. Your bladder leaks. So, yeah. Always just scared of what I'm about to say. But, yeah, I'm married to Sue. We've been married over 21 years, and we've got three beautiful kids, little Chloe and bigger Caitlin over there. And my son, Liam, he's, uh, he phoned me this morning to say he's about to tee off on the Montague Golf Course at Fancourt, which is one of my top three favorite golf courses in the world. So... He just wanted to wish me Happy Father's Day and then rub salt in my wounds to say that he's playing with his girlfriend's father. So, who knows? Um, Lord, we hand that over to you. <laughs> so, for those of you who were with us last week, um, I'm glad you returned. Uh, some of us felt rebuked. Some of us felt bludgeoned by Paul's we, Me to We uh, preach or... Yeah, me to we, that's right. It's not we to me. But um, he was talking and preaching specifically against this idea of individualitis that the world is so obsessed with. The, the smartphones and internet and total connectivity has enabled us to become isolationist in our thinking. We can sit at home and worship God by ourselves on, through TV and Facebook and, and the late, latest online preachers. But it's difficult to get out and come and be with us together. Individualitis is something that is totally unbiblical, friends. And we're going to continue our journey through Nehemiah and I'm going to dabble back into Ezra. So just bear with me there. There's a lot of scripture today. But we're going to continue our journey by looking at a heart attitude that was prevalent in those people of the time. It either assisted those people or it was a hamperer. And it was the same attitude, but with a different intention and motive behind it. When I read through Ezra and Nehemiah a couple of times in preparation for today, I was astounded at how often this, this attitude came up. I'd never seen it before, but as I read through with a magnifying glass of this attitude, it was simply amazing as to how often and how instrumental it was to all that was done. The ESV Study Bible says that one of the top six themes of Nehemiah is that of, the worship, is that of worship being at the center of God's people. And the way they worshipped God was through their time, efforts, money, provisions, and skills and resources. So friends, this... This attitude I'm going to talk through, which will probably pop up now, and I'm sure you may have guessed it, is one of generosity. What is generosity? I look at the Oxford English Dictionary and I read that generosity is defined as the willingness to give help or support, especially more than is usual or expected, to give freely. So it's not just giving help or support or just being available or at the end of a call. It's about more than that, especially more than is usual or expected. I want to begin this morning with a word of thanks to the many, many we people in this community. 
the many, many people that tithe sacrificially month in and month out, who serve on serve stellies, on missions, um, who attend life groups. Sometimes it's tough to attend a life group on a Wednesday when it's pouring with rain. Who set up um, in the early days of setting up and when Paul managed to secure these very heavy wooden structures, serving was a burden. <laughs> and then I changed my attitude. I changed my attitude to say serving and setting up is serving God. And when I'm serving God, I need to do it with a heart of generosity. And it fundamentally shifted the way I set up in the morning. I look forward to that message from Shomain. Not that much, Shomain. <laughs> but I do look forward to coming and setting up because we're going to worship God and we're going to create a space that is joyful for people to worship Him. For all the people who share their skills and talents in the various ministries, whether you are seen or unseen, whether you are recognized or unrecognized, private or public, God sees you. So in the church, we understand giving. The Christian church was founded entirely on, on generosity of its people. Many of the early converts gave their lives. There can be no greater act of generosity. There's no membership fee in the church. We don't ask for a membership fee and you sign a document and when you, when you don't enjoy it, you check out or you cancel your membership. The church is entirely sustained through the generosity of its leaders, its elders, its deacons, its congregants. Whether it's our finances, whether it's our skills, whether it's our talents, or whether it's our time. Did you know that the act of giving is the only act you have 100% control over? There is nothing else that you control, absolutely. Take this pen. If Nathan wants this pen, and I'm holding this pen, he is stronger than me, faster than me, younger than me, cleverer than me, more capable than me. But if he wants this pen, I have to give it to him. I'm in control of this relationship. As soon as I give it to him, I'm out of control. He's now got the pen. He's now in control. So how he responds to me is entirely in his control. I have no control over the response I'm going to receive from Nathan. He may thank me for it. He may ignore me. He may use it against me. He may turn away and chuck it in the bin. He's in control of his response just as I'm in control of what I give him. And just as he responds to me, I'm then in turn in control again of how I respond to his response. So can you see the working of relationship? How we are only in control of what we give to our relationship, not what we receive. Friends, in the world we live in, control is an obsession in the world. And there's two ways to understand the control. The one is the Donald Trump way of command and beat and abuse. And so Nathan could beat this pen out of me, Donald Trump style. Or there's the influence way. And that influence is earned. That trust between Nathan and I and this pen will be earned over a period of time. Some people trust very quickly. Some people take a time to trust. But for the control freaks in the room, and there's many of us, and I was one of them and still am probably, to give is to be in control. The world gets it 180 degrees wrong. And in the corporate world that I've 
come from and still operate in, people think to be in control is to take. The giver is in control, friends. So I'm going to look at two significant motives or intentions that reside behind our generosity. And it's beautifully played out in Ezra and Nehemiah. But I had to see it. I had to look for it. I'd never seen this before. But as I was prepping, God spoke to me and he said, there it is, son. The the fruit of both of these attitudes or intentions are different. Yet they both are behind the act of generosity. And I'll I'll try and explain that as as we go through the morning. So let's look at the first fruit, which uh, the first intention or motive behind generosity. And I'm going to call it conditionality or conditional generosity. It's the unhelpful one. It's generosity with strings attached. I'll give you something. I'll give you the pen. But Nathan, I want you to say thank you. And if he doesn't say thank you, I'm not going to give him a pen again. It's that conditional generosity, friends. And as children, we know this well. In fact, we are brought up with this give-to-get mentality. So think of a baby. A baby's hungry. What does it do? Or it's got a dirty nappy. It can't talk through words and rationalize, so it squawks. It kicks up a great fuss. And what do parents do? They feed or clean. And babies are very clever, guys and girls. They're very clever. They learn from birth that they're in control. And if they want something, they squawk. So as the baby gets to young kid, it decides, right, I want that toy, or I want that sweet, or I want that something. And it kicks up a fuss. And many times, in fact, most, more times than should be, the parents give in. The parents give the child what they, what they want. And slowly we start ingraining that give-to-get mentality. I'll give you something as long as I get something back in return. More sophisticated and responsible parents put incentives and rewards. And in my day, it was star charts. You do five good things in the week and you'll get 10 bucks for your pocket money or you'll get a sweet tea or whatever it is. And I know some of the more competitive parents in the room do this relentlessly. <laughs> we then move on to university and we, we learn that the harder we work and the more lectures we tend and the more extra lessons we go to, the more likely the chances are we'll get our degree. Liam last year didn't attend many lectures, lectures and he really, really only just scraped through. This year he's attending them relentlessly and his results reflect that greater level of give-to-get mentality. We then enter the work world and we, enter, we introduce the monetary dynamic and the career and the corporate ladder. And the harder you work, the bigger your bonus and the greater your promotional chances. But there's always a conditionality, friends. There's always this give to get. I'll give you something and I expect something in return. This is not helpful. And what it does to our generosity is it creates a conditionality to our generosity. In the secular world that I operate in Monday to Friday, this makes perfect sense. It's the way we operate. It's the barter, the exchange of gifts and ideas for an exchange of gifts and ideas. But friends, name me one business or corporation that's been around longer than 200 years. Yet for some reason the church is still going strong 2,000 years later. 
We see this conditionality played out in Ezra. And I'm going to get into Scripture now, and it's, there's going to be a lot of reading because there's a lot of Scripture, and it's powerful. We start off right up front with King Cyrus's generosity towards the exiled Jews taken captive in Babylon. And we read in Ezra 1 verse 4, Cyrus is proclaiming, and each, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. King Cyrus has issued a decree allowing the Jews to return from Babylon. They were captured by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon. Jerusalem was ransacked. And now, under Cyrus's reign, they're being allowed, many years later, to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. Not only has Cyrus allowed these captured Jews to return, but he's making way for them. He's, he's giving them provisions of gold and silver and freewill offerings and random acts of kindness, for want of a better term. But we start to see some of the true intention behind Cyrus's heart. We read further in um, verses 6 to 11. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. That's a lot. And he gave, and these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. But right at the beginning of that verse, friends, we read that most of the gold, silver, and treasures that Cyrus gave to the first wave of returning Jews, was originally theirs. It was their ancestors. It it had been plundered and taken and kept in great storerooms in Babylon. So we marvel at Cyrus' generosity, and we should, but can we see that he's hedged his bets? He's not impoverishing his kingdom in any way. He's emptying a storehouse of of the stuff that they stole and took that is not being used and is not needed. He is giving out of his abundance, friends. So under Shezbazar, under his leadership, the first wave of exiles returns to Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding the temple. Not only were the people's hearts stirred to return to Jerusalem, but the king's heart and all the officials. And there was adequate provisions that had been preserved and now was being returned. God had not forgotten his promise and he had meticulously planned and provided for his people's return. God wanted to restore the temple, and he wanted to restore the people's worship of him in Jerusalem. And he used, amongst other things, the generosity of many to achieve this, including a pagan king. Now this was quite something for a conquering nation to do, to free the captives, return the loot. This was most certainly more than expected when we look back at the definition of generosity. But things things start to go horribly wrong. And Cyrus's true motive is revealed. The people from the surrounding areas start generating fake news. They start getting concerned about what the Jews are doing and this rebuilding of a temple. They're doing nothing other than rebuilding a temple. So they start plotting 
to disrupt this rebuild. We read in Ezra 4, verses 4 to 5, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Darius succeeded Cyrus when Cyrus passed on. Suddenly we see the conditionality to Cyrus's decree and support. In those days it was common for, um, for, for kings to enrich the, uh, the outlying areas. That increased their, it, it increased their tax base. There were more people, a flourishing economy in, in Jerusalem meant more people, more taxes, and taxes meant wealth and power. So for, for Cyrus to, to want to enrich Jerusalem and rebuild, um, have Jerusalem as a, vi- a viable economy again was not unusual. It was selfish. So when word got out that the Jews may be strengthening themselves and conspiring to, to act against and overthrow the king, Cyrus pulled up the handbrake. He took away his protection. He took away his provision. And the rebuilding of the temple ground to a halt for almost two years. That was the remainder of Cyrus's reign. He reigned for another ten years from that handbrake moment. And at the first sign of danger, we see that things stalled. The true, true heart of his conditional generosity is revealed. Yes, he was generous. Yes, he did things rulers, most rulers would not do. But he pulled up the handbrake, even with fake news. And we thought fake news was a Trump thing. The reciprocal relationship of generosity shown by Cyrus resulted in the reciprocal response of the people. They stopped working. They said, no, it's too dangerous. I can't go there. I can't rebuild this temple for fear of my life. Back to our world. Let's see some examples of this negative fruit of conditional generosity. Think of the screaming child in the supermarket who wants that sweetie at the Woolies checkout counter. I mean, it's a 200-meter 200, 200 uh, run of fear for most young parents with young kids, arms all over the place, grabbing at sweets and biltong and all sorts of... And when they don't get what they want, they go mental. Think of the hard-working employee who worked their butt off, sacrificed long hours and holidays and and time to get that project in on time or that report done or who then doesn't get a bonus or a promotion at the end of the year. They go rogue. They return to their childhood ways and start to knock the business and knock the leadership and knock everything and possibly even resign and find another job. That give-to-get mentality is deeply ingrained. Back to this pen. If Nathan doesn't respond generously to my generous act, I'm not going to give him another pen. No matter how strong he is, no matter how influential he is, no matter how nicely he asks. That relationship is key, friends. Let's get closer to home and maybe a little bit personal in church circles. And I'm not saying this happens here. But there are times, and and reading some research from Barna and some of the big organizations that research church behavior, they say that it it takes 18 months for people to start tithing to the church. That's conditionality. 
I'm going to come and check it out. I'm going to see that I like the pastor. I'm going to check the vibe. The, that's real wood. It's not uh, fake wood. And only then will I start tithing. Or maybe I'll check the finance feedback and, wow, this church is abundantly wealthy. They don't need my money. My money is too little, too small. They don't need it. Or I've got a gift or a skill or a talent, but I'm going to sit on it. I'm not going to use it to serve this, this church. Paul spoke about holy discontent a few weeks ago. Last week he spoke about me to we. Or Paul mentioned last week, the weather's beautiful outside. It's Father's Day. I'm not going to come to church this morning. Or the weather's miserable. I'm not going to get out of bed. Friends, there's conditionality in all of our hearts. And I repent of that afresh. When I was prepping, even this morning, every day, it's a constant battle. And the reason it's a constant battle is it was so ingrained in me as a child, as a student, as an employee and an employer, that give to get mentality. So it's not unusual that this conditionality exists. And the fruit, unfortunately, of this conditionality is frustration, it's suspicion, it's distrust, it's failed projects, it's delays in projects as we saw with the rebuilding of the temple. The temple took an extra 10 years to be completed. So just as the king withdrew support, so too the people pulled back. And I cannot overemphasize this reciprocal relationship that exists between people. An ungodly response from a leader is going to result in an ungodly response from a follower and vice versa. Fortunately, King Cyrus's reign eventually comes to an end. And he's succeeded by King Darius, who then is succeeded by King Artaxerxes, and under him we are introduced to Nehemiah. In Darius's case, he's a better guy, and in Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, they are the good guys. And they introduce us to the second um, intent or motive behind generosity that I'm going to talk on today, and that being sacrificial or unconditional generosity. Darius quickly reinstituted the rebuilding of the temple, and we read in Ezra 6, 8-11, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. The royal revenue, not the proceeds of our plundering. The tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anybody alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. Now for anybody who wants to go into a fight or threaten somebody, I think that is beautiful. <laughs> a beam is going to come out of your house, impale you, kill you, and your house is going to turn into a dunghill. Darius, my man. <laughs> so that's quite an extreme threat, and that can work once. So that generosity of Darius... He's not going to allow anybody to get in the way of the rebuilding of this temple. I'm saying to you, friends, that's not, that's not where we're going. 
But that's a step in the right direction from where Cyrus was. Threatening death and anything that got in his way. Notice there's no mention of gold or silver or treasures. This had all been returned already. The items Darius was promising was bulls, rams, sheep, wheat, salt, wine, and oil. All things the people had to make or produce or nurture. This was real sacrifice. Giving back the loot of your plundering journeys is not sacrifice. That's just rebalancing. Under Darius's reign, the temple was eventually completed. It took roughly 20 years in total, of which there was this 10-year delay. Some 70 years later, we read of Nehemiah's call to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So now the temple's rebuilt, and we carry on, and then Nehemiah enters the scene. It's about 70 years later. And in Nehemiah 2, verse 78, we read, and this is Nehemiah speaking, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon him. Here we see Artaxerxes granting Nehemiah, his trusted servant, all that he asked. And Nehemiah wasn't an ordinary dude. Nehemiah was the, was the cupbearer to the king. And what did the cupbearer to the king do? Every time the king had to drink something, his cupbearer would drink it first. And if the cupbearer fell down dead, the king would not drink what was given. So this was not some ordinary oak that Artaxerxes was releasing from his his uh, staff. This was a guy that Artaxerxes trusted with his life. A real sacrifice. Who in the business world, or even this church, Paul Bates wants to go and disappear for three years. You're going to be happy? Not a chance. In the business world, your top employee comes and says, I've had enough, I'm out of here for three years, I'll maybe come back or I won't come back. And this is somebody you trust with your organization, with your um, with running or doing whatever you, whatever you do. This is sacrifice for Artaxerxes to allow ne- um, Nehemiah to go and do a job that he was not gifted at. He was not a builder. He was a cupbearer. It cost Artaxerxes dearly, and he would need to find and trust somebody new. Not only did Artaxerxes release Nehemiah, but he provided all the provisions and safe passage that Nehemiah requested. We then re- last week, Paul took us so beautifully through chapter three that we often just page over because there's just so many names, and I love that picture of the wall and all the names of the people around the wall. And the response of the people was to use whatever they had, whether they were goldsmiths or perfumers or whether they had sons or daughters, to rebuild right in front of them. There was even the poor dude that had to rebuild around the dung gate. Anything they needed and had, they gave swiftly and vigorously to rebuild the section of the wall in front of them. But there was something else going on here. In Nehemiah 7.4, we read that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. 
Now imagine in our day, if suddenly all these, all this free provision was coming from the outlying areas, beams and wood and bricks and stuff was all coming, and our house was falling down. Do you think some of us would have been tempted to just take a week off, disappear, and take some of that stuff and patch up our walls and patch up our, our roof? Not one of them was tempted. Surrounded by all this temptation, these people sacrificially gave of their time and efforts generously. But I strongly contend, friends, that there was one major reason for this attitude. And we read about this in Nehemiah 5, 14 to 19. It was the attitude of the governor, Nehemiah, the good guy. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at least, there were at my table 150 men. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was so generous with his governor's allowance that he forfeited it entirely. Unlike other governors that had lorded it over the people, extracted what was rightfully due to them, Nehemiah realized that this was a people burdened, and this burden would be too much for them. He willingly forfeited his allowance for the sake of these people. And I contend, friends, that it's only because of this sacrificial generosity, or not only, but it's one of the major reasons, it was because of this sacrificial generosity of Nehemiah that these people gave of everything. He was also able to turn them to God. He says he had a fear of God. And he also said, he also prayed at the end there, remember my good, oh my God. He was asking God to remember him. Not the people, not man. He wasn't that concerned around the people's response to him because he knew he had no control over it. This is one of the many examples that we read about in the Bible of servant leadership, something that I'm incredibly passionate about, and maybe that will be another day. So, similarly, as the Jews faced serious opposition when they were rebuilding the temple, they faced it again now. The people of the outlying areas were no different. They hadn't changed. But look how the response of the people was so different. Nehemiah 4, 14 to 21. And I look and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. We don't read any of this remember God or turn to God in, in Ezra and Shezbazar's leadership of the people of the time under Cyrus. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Friends, these people were prepared to labor under extreme conditions. Fear of attack, long hours from morning to night, with swords on one side and the bricks and the timber in the other hands. By putting his people first, Nehemiah extracted a generous sacrifice from these people. He earned their loyalty, he earned their commitment, and more importantly, he was able to focus them back on God. Right at the beginning we read, remember the Lord, that God has frustrated their plan, that God will fight for us. He was connected with God and he was connected with them through his total acts of sacrificial generosity. The response of the people was incredible. And we read that the walls, that enormous section around Jerusalem, was rebuilt in 52 days. The temple, a single structure, took 20 years. The walls took 52 days. A miracle of the time. These people worked harder than they'd ever worked before. They responded with everything they had. All their time, all their possessions, their skills, their talents, even risking their lives. But there's something else that come. The priests and rulers were so struck by these mighty works and God's faithfulness and provision that they as a community gathered and committed to fully turn their hearts and lives back to God. They witnessed God's hand to the response of these people. And they were convicted. They'd gone astray. They'd stopped worshiping God. They'd stopped committing their first fruits. And they repented. They had a day-long gathering where they repented of their sins. They went back to the Torah and they reread the entire history from Moses to the exile to the good times and the bad times. And they repented of their sin. And they decided to commit fully again. They recommitted themselves to sacrificial generosity. I'm not going to read the whole section of Nehemiah 10, 32 to 39. But we see that there's a, a real commitment. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings. And make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the houses of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering. We read further that we obligate 
ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of God to the priests who minister the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil of the priests. They really recommitted, friends. And right at the end of this section we read, For we will not neglect the house of God. God had moved so powerfully through Artaxerxes, through Nehemiah, through the people, that these priests who were running the temple at the time were so powerfully moved that they recommitted to the first fruit tithing laws of the Old Testament. And I think they went above and beyond what those laws say. We will not neglect the house of God. So friends, the fruit, so just as I explained, the fruit of conditional generosity means frustration and, and uh, distrust and failed projects. The fruit, the fruit of sacrificial or unconditional generosity is clear to see. From the generosity of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah, the Jews, the people from the outlying areas, whether they were priests or nobles, commoners, servants, this reciprocal, beautiful relationship of sacrificial generosity amongst all produced the following astounding fruit. First, we see God's favor, God's protection, God's provision throughout. Our generous God responds to our generous acts of sacrifice. Secondly, we see true servant leadership at play. We see Nehemiah forfeiting everything he's due as the governor of that land. We see a committed people risking everything, including their lives, to complete this task. Not only did these people risk everything, but they turned their eye away from the temptations to rebuild their own homes. They sacrificed their homes for the rebuilding of the wall. We see a miracle in that this wall was completed in 52 days compared to the temple that took 20 years. And very importantly, friends, we see a return to God, a repentance of sin and a restoration, a recommitment of this people to God. What a contrast to the fruit of conditional generosity. So friends, what kind of a leader, what kind of a boss, what kind of a lecturer, what kind of a student, what kind of a parent, what kind of a child, what kind of a follower are you? The sacrificial, unconditional generosity flow through your veins. Or are we stuck in a give-to-get mentality? Now let's fast forward a few hundred years to the time of Jesus. And I'm sure you've all made the link between sacrificial generosity and the act of Jesus dying on the cross for us. God sacrificed his son on the cross for us unconditionally. But I'm going to expound on a miracle to make my point. And we're reading from John 6, verse 4 to 10. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. 
But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We all know what happens next. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and he feeds 5,000 people. And afterwards they gather up the leftovers and there's 12 baskets. An incredible miracle. I've never heard it spoken or mentioned about the other miracle that took place that day. The sacrificial act of generosity of that young boy. As an accountant, I battle with this thing. As a former, as a, as a recently saved 10 odd years ago, I battle with this thing. Imagine we're in that crowd of 5,000 and you are the only one that brought some lunch. Now everybody's hungry, everybody wants lunch and some dude comes to you and says, please can I have your lunch? I want to give it to that guy who's talking. Nobody really knows who that guy was at that stage. And he might do something with it. My first response is going to be, and this is because responsibility is number one on my strengths finder, is, dude, I was the responsible one. Go away. If all these people were irresponsible, that's their problem. That's the consequence of their irresponsibility. I was responsible. I'm going to eat. Famous. Secondly, if I'm able to get over my responsibility bent, which is difficult, I'm going to be filled with disbelief. What? I've got five loaves and two fish and there's 5,000 people there. What are you going to do with such a little with so many people? I'm going to be filled with disbelief. And if I'm able to get over my responsibility and if I'm able to get over my disbelief, I'm going to be filled with self-preservation. I'm going to say, here's four loaves and one fish. I'm going to keep one loaf and one fish and I'm going to chow. I'm going to feed my family and I'm going to enjoy what I brought because I'm responsible. Not so. That's why Jesus doesn't use me for miracles. <laughs> As adults, friends, we are going to rationalize. We're going to scenario plan. We're going to figure stuff out. We're going to justify our position of conditional generosity. Well, I am. I know you guys won't. In this miracle, God used a child. A child is not going to think through rationally like an adult is. I just wonder what that boy's father said to him when he gave away his lunch. I know what I would have said. But can we see that the act, that act of sacrificial generosity of that boy produced a miracle? And without that act, there would have been no miracle. God uses our sacrificial generosity to perform miracles and reconnect his people back to him. So as we saw in Nehemiah's time and with this boy, there was a miracle in both scenarios. 52 days to rebuild that wall, 5,000 people fed. There was a return to God in both scenarios. The people of, of Israel at the time recommitted and refocused themselves on God. And many in the 5,000 began to follow this man, Jesus. Jesus calls us to childlike faith. In Mark 10, Jesus is speaking to a gathering of people. And as the children were coming up to him, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter into it. Friends, we are called to childlike faith. Not rationalized, considered, and intellectualized faith. But childlike faith. It is a miracle I have faith. Fully trusting, fully believing, fully submitted. Sacrificially generous. So when Jesus died for our sins, he took on his shoulders everything that we do wrong. Our sinful nature, our sinful selves. And in this total act of ultimate sacrificial generosity, he created a place for us in heaven. There is only one condition attached. And that condition is that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. There is no way we can earn it or buy it. There is only one simple condition, and that is a total acceptance and submission to Him as our Lord and Savior. Once we have done that, there is no further conditions. We read in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. So friends, how do we respond to this gift? God has given us the pen of this gift. So how do we respond to this gift? Everything we bring or do to the church, we do for God. In Revelations, John writes that the church is his bride. He treasures and values us so much that he refers to us as his bride. Those of you that are married, you know how much you love your spouse. You know how much you would protect and die for and honor and love your spouse. How much you would give sacrificially to your spouse. Those of you about have not married or will get married one day. Love sacrificially. So when I give Nathan the pen, what is an appropriate response? When Nehemiah sacrificed his governor's allowance, what was the appropriate response of the people? When God sacrificed Jesus for our sin and guaranteed our salvation, what is our appropriate response? In my mind, there's only one appropriate response. It's the same response we read about in Nehemiah 3 last week, and Nehemiah 5 and 10 and John 6 this week. The same one that will endure through good and bad. The only sustainable response we can possibly make. The only response we have absolute control over. We give without condition. Our time, our talents, our resources. And through this act of giving, we're worshipping God. We're honoring God with our gifts and talents. We open the doors for God to do miracles through us. No matter how small or insignificant we think our gift or talent or contribution is. He uses it. He will use our sacrificial gifts and generous acts for His kingdom and our heavenly reward. Conversely, everything we withhold from the church, we withhold from Him. Recognizing seasons in our lives, I challenge us all in a responsibility that is God-honoring. Let us break the chains of conditionality let us become childlike in our faith and the giving of our time, skills, and money. Let us fully trust God to use us and our resources for the good works He has planned for us. Unlike countries 
and rulers and businesses that come and go, the church is still going strong nearly 2,000 years later, having relied entirely on the sacrificial acts of generosity of its leaders, its congregants, and the followers of Christ. Friends, we are part of an ever-continuing, ever-present miracle of God's sacrificial generosity. Let us pray. Father, I thank you today for each and every person in this church, from Paul and Ollie and their families as elders, to every one of the rest of us as congregants, for the many, many sacrificial givers, the we people in a me-driven world, who tithe obediently even under great sacrifice, who serve diligently in the area of ministry and service, day in and day out, whether seen or unseen, recognized or unrecognized, who love the church, your body, Christ's ultimate bride, so beautifully. I pray that we will all embrace our generosity in a more intentionally sacrificial way, to be better servant leaders, to give more generously of our time, of our gifts and of our resources. Father, I pray that we, you will help us cross the hurdles of responsibility, the hurdles of disbelief and the hurdles of self-preservation and begin to live in the abundance you promised us. A people doing the good works you planned in advance for us. Father, I thank you that you made all of this possible through this, the saving act of Jesus' death and resurrection, the ultimate act of sacrificial generosity. Father, help us respond to this in a totally submitted worship of you through all we have. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.